Welcome to the Play Notes podcast, where we give you the inside scoop on the main stage productions here at Portland Stage. I am Nick Cohn. And I'm Portland Stage's education director, Michael Dix Thomas. Thank you so much for being here, Mike. Maura O'Sullivan, the longtime co-host of this, will not be joining us on this episode. She has actually moved on to bigger and better things, working at Barrington Stage as the literary and artistic coordinator. So big congratulations to Maura. We'll certainly miss her here at Portland Stage and on the podcast, but we are so excited for her next adventure. And I'm excited to be here chatting with you today, Nick. Fantastic. Today's episode, we're going to deep dive into our current production, The Cake by Becca Brunstetter. We'll be kicking off with a little chat about the education department here at Portland State. That's right. And then we'll discuss the actual Supreme Court case this play is based on, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and talk about the history of why we have cakes at weddings. And then we're going to move on to some ideas and questions that the education department wants audiences to think about before and after seeing the show. So do you want to get into it, Mike? Let's get into it. So on this episode, we're lucky enough to have Michael Dix Thomas, the current director of education here at Portland Stage. So Mike, can you tell us a little bit about the department? Thank you. Yeah. So Portland Stage has a large education department. We run programs year round here at the theater. Uh, We run camps and classes on site, as well as programs with schools, bringing students into our theater to see our shows and to do some workshops and programs with us in the education department. All of our programs are rooted in text, in literacy in some way, and all of our programs serve the social and emotional needs of students, the kinds of things that we think students are really lacking right now after the past couple of years in education. Our programs focus on training students with the skills that they'll need to succeed in and outside of theater and the performing arts. So our programs... Though we are delighted when we get folks in who are interested in pursuing a career or a life or a hobby in performing, we think that our programs build the kinds of skills that folks use every day. Things like public speaking, emotional awareness and recognition, communicating and collaborating with others. And it's important that we offer those skills to everybody. So we try to make our programs as accessible as possible. There's financial aid available for every single program that we offer for the stuff that we charge for. We offer reduced programs to schools as well as individuals if cost is a barrier. We're always trying to get out into the community to meet folks where they are as much as possible and trying to scaffold programs that are available for students at whatever level they're at, be that age or ability, we want to be able to meet folks where they're at. All of our programming is focused on process over product. So instead of trying to build towards a performance at the end of a program, we really want to focus on what are we learning along the way and how are we building programs that are meeting the needs of students along the way. And by the end, we usually do what we call a sharing. So instead of a final performance, like a recital, like you might think of in a school play, something like that, we build more towards a a work in progress sharing uh, for all of our programs. Our focus is really to educate students, to expose them to the performing arts and to arts in general, to hopefully build future supporters and audience members for theaters and the performing arts and to give students the skills that they need to succeed and collaborate in wherever their lives take them. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mike, for that wonderful description of the education department. Are there any additional programs that are coming up? 
Yes, we are right about to start our Shakespeare Teen Company program, which is a program we do every spring where high school and some older middle school students perform a Shakespeare play. They put on a show together, a cut version of the show that I will work on with them, and Nick will as well as a member of the education department. We'll be staging that this year off-site because of some renovation that's going on in our theater. We will be at the Gillen Farm Audubon Center in Falmouth, which is really exciting. Shakespeare outside, Shakespeare in the park in a beautiful setting. That should be a lot of fun. Those performances are coming up in the end of May. And then we launch right into summer camps. So throughout the summer, we'll be offering camps both here and off-site all around southern Maine, mostly in Portland, but we have some camps that are a little further afield this year. And uh, we have camps for kindergartners through 12th graders. All of that information is available on our website at portlandstage.org education. What are some of the themes of some of the camps that are coming up? Oh, we've got some great themes. So we have camps for some of our elementary school students around Mary Poppins. Uh, we have a camp around King Arthur and Fun. Merlin. We have a camp for older students around comedy, exploring different ways of comedy called Make Em Laugh Camp, where we'll explore some different kinds of comedy, uh, hopefully some clown work as well. We're doing a couple of camps off-site that are acting intensives focused on devising. Devising theater is when you create a piece based on some prompt. So this year we have uh, two devising camps, one at the Desert of Maine in Freeport, where we'll be devising a piece of theater, an original piece created based on the unique ecology and history of that particular site, and one inspired by a piece of temporary public art being put up in Portland's uh, Western Prom Park with Tempo Arts, a temporary arts collection here in Portland, Maine. That's so fantastic. Thank you so much. With the age groups that we often serve in the education department, they might actually remember growing up seeing on television the Supreme Court case that this play, The Cake by Becca Brunsetter, is actually based on. So this piece is based on a Supreme Court case called Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. It was a 2017 case after an event in 2012 where two men, Charlie Craig and David Mullins, approached Jack Phillips, the owner of a bakery, Masterpiece Cake Shop, to purchase a wedding cake. And the crux of it was that Phillips, the owner of the bakery, refused to bake or decorate a cake for the couple, stating that his religious beliefs did not support same-sex unions. So this play is basically a dramatized version of that case told through the lens of a lesbian couple going back to one of the characters' hometowns to visit an old family friend who runs a bakery. And so this play is dealing with a lot of real sort of stakes that people in our audiences will probably remember the actuality of it playing out. So Mike, could you tell us a little bit about the introduction of what we saw in this case. Yeah, so when Craig and Mullins planned their wedding, um, they were actually already married. They'd been married in Massachusetts. Uh, gay marriage wasn't legal in Colorado at the time. So they came to the cake shop uh, in 2012 to get a cake to celebrate the wedding. When they were turned away, they saw the injustice of the situation, and they turned to this Colorado Civil Rights Division to file a discrimination complaint. And the division found that Phillips had violated the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, uh, which states that, quote, it is unlawful for a person directly or indirectly to refuse goods and services to an individual or a group 
because of disability, race, creed, color, sex, sexual orientation, marital status, national origin, or ancestry at a place of public accommodation. Right. And to most, refusing to make a couple, a gay couple, a cake seems like a pretty straightforward example of discrimination. But the legality of the Masterpiece Cake Shop incident is a little bit more complicated than that. According to the Anti-Discrimination Act, businesses are not allowed to discriminate against several protected classes. At the same time, the law protects individuals' free will and religious beliefs. So even though Masterpiece Cake Shop was legally obligated to serve the gay couple, Phillips as a private citizen had the right to act according to his religious beliefs. So the lines become quite blurred. Did this detail mean that Masterpiece Cake Shop was fulfilling their legal requirement? Or, as Phillips' legal team argued, was he simply exerting his own exercise of free will and religious freedom? So the question was asked, would it violate free exercise of religious freedom of speech under the First Amendment to force Masterpiece Cake Shop to design and bake a cake for a same-sex wedding? It's worth noting that the progression of the case to the Supreme Court changes the stakes because in court, the outcome of a case decided by common law becomes precedent for future cases involving similar legal issues or disputes. And when this court case got to the Supreme Court, the stakes were very high because not only was it tied up in topical social issues, but as SCOTUS is the highest court in the U.S. legal system, its decisions are binding precedent not only for the lower federal courts, but for all of state courts as well. Yes, there's a lot of media and anticipation on this particular case. It was really divisive and got a lot, a lot of attention when this came before the Supreme Court. So Craig and Mullins and activists supporting the queer community were all pretty devastated when the ruling came down. The decision from seven of the nine justices on the court ruled to overturn the original decision and ruled in Phillips' favor, with only Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor disagreeing with the ruling. The Supreme Court cited the commission's hostility to Phillips' religion as enough reason to reverse the decision specifically choosing his protection of religion over the protection of the civil rights of Craig and Mullins. They focused on a couple of quotes from the commission's ruling, one stating that Phillips couldn't use his personal beliefs to inform how he runs his business, and the other speaking more broadly to the use of religion as rhetoric to commit wrongdoing, which have both been examined by experts in the years since, many of whom have drawn some doubt about how those statements represented the case. The court also justified that the Civil Rights Commission has historically ruled in favor of bakers who refuse to make cakes with specific messages, though people have been quick to point out that those cases had not violated a discrimination law. Now, the Supreme Court's decision was viewed by many as weak and politically motivated, but it did not provide full permission for queer folks around the country to be actively discriminated against, as SCOTUS quote, did not rule on the broader constitutional questions of freedom of religion and anti-discrimination, but rather ruled on the Colorado Commission's practices. So while this may seem like a small detail in language, it means that this court case masterpiece cannot be used as a precedent for making the same argument as Phillips. So for example, a web designer, Lori Smith, in 2022, preemptively sued Colorado with the belief that, quote, the state's public accommodations, parentheses, 
not discriminating against minority groups, have already violated her right of free speech. Now, this has not been settled yet. Decision is expected sometime this summer, but it's a new opportunity for the central issue of Masterpiece to be answered and acknowledged in a way that was sidestepped in 2018. So this is a highly anticipated decision and queer activists hope that the decision will go their way thanks to a changing political climate and President Biden's appointment of Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. If you're interested in learning more about LGBTQIA law and policy and how you can use your voice to get involved, check out the article with Gia Drew, Director of Equality Maine, in the Portland Stage Play Notes article online. Summer is right around the corner, so you know what that means. It's time for Portland Stage's Summer Camps for Teens. Our week-long theater camps are fun, engaging, and challenging opportunities for students to immerse themselves in the world of theater and performance. Limited space is still available in our acting intensive camps for teenagers in July and August. Whether focused on comedy or storytelling, inside the theater or out in the community, acting intensive camps build performance and collaborative skills, create community, and provide unique experiences for rising 8th to 12th grade students. For more information and to register for Portland Stage summer camps, go to portlandstage.org slash education slash camps. That's portlandstage.org forward slash education forward slash camps. Now, this article focuses a lot on the legal reality behind the dramatic situation of the cake, the play. And the script itself does not get really into the legal minutiae, but more into the social dynamics between a baker and a queer person who have a prior relationship, but then having this sort of idea of religious freedom versus anti-discrimination placed upon that relationship. Yeah, and Brunstetter's been really open about this in her interviews, where she feels like she speaks to both sides of this particular argument, right? This is an argument that's not about, as you said, about the legality of this case. It's about the social dynamics at play here and understanding where these folks are coming from who don't feel comfortable making a cake for a same-sex couple, while also understanding that perhaps that is wrong and that these folks deserve to celebrate their weddings in the same way. And that's really what this play is about, is how these people who have relationships with each other, close, intimate relationships with each other on both sides of this debate, navigate that and how they deal with these big legal questions in their own personal lives. Mm -hmm. And I think Brunsetter does a really lovely job of giving time and air to these questions, really putting out on stage that both of these people could be right or that both of these people could be wrong in a situation. And letting that breathe and letting the audience really make a decision for themselves on it in just showing that this script is full of just people. There are not very many caricatures or outright statements, but more of asking the audience to take a look at the situation. It's a really interesting play in the way that it does kind of, it toys with ideas like stereotype in a comic way, right? It leans into those a little bit when we talk about Brooklyn and we talk about North Carolina in ways that show us, but it really plays those things for comedy. And at the root, all of these characters are really deeply human and flawed and struggling in their own ways. And the play explores them with a real compassion for everybody involved. Yeah. And I think it is worth noting that Becca Brunsetter has said herself that she is not a queer person and that this play was written prior to the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision being handed down. So as we mentioned, there was a 
six year gap between the initial incident and the actual Supreme Court decision being handed down. So this was written in a moment of time. If you listen to our interview with director Todd Brian Backus, he really speaks a lot to the specific energy of a pre-2018 midterms, middle of the Trump presidency political moment, and how that affected Brunsetter's writing process. You can really hear it, you can see it in this play. So it's worth noting going into it, written by a straight woman in this political moment, because it really comes across in the language and the way that this is handled, but I still think that it is a interesting and worthwhile take on this issue. Amazing. So let's shift gears just a little bit from the big questions at play here in the cake and dig into the actual cake itself from the history of wedding cakes and see if we can get into why these sweet confections have become such an important part of our nuptial ceremonies. So there are lots of traditions that go with weddings, uh, breaking the glass, throwing the bouquet, jumping the broom. There are lots of wedding traditions. Some of them are cultural. Some of them are specific to families or to regions. Some of them are universal, but every tradition has a way for couples to come together in marriage. And one of the traditions that we see throughout history is around food. Really interesting to see how this idea of a cake has come into play in our modern wedding industry. Yeah, because I know that we can trace the idea of a wedding cake most closely related to a tradition from the ancient Greeks and Romans. It was closer to a bread or a scone-like cake that was actually broken over the bride's head to symbolize the new couple's fertility. In those times, grain was very closely associated with fertility as the Greek and Romans saw wheat and grains as the symbol of agriculture and the earth's fertility. Even the Roman goddess Ceres was the goddess of both the harvest and fertility as was her Greek counterpart Demeter. To invite good fortune from both of these goddesses, the newlyweds would consume a few crumbs of the broken cake and the wedding guests would eat the rest of the crumbs for good luck. And as the Romans began to spread throughout Western Europe and the Mediterranean Middle East and the Levant and Northern Africa, they began to take their customs with them, spreading the tradition of breaking bread as we might know it today. By the time the wedding cake came to Britain, the Brits put their own spin on the tradition, throwing bread at the bride to wish her fertility, which <laughs> is eventually where we got the throwing rice at the couple tradition yeah. that many people use today. So baked goods, punctuated weddings for centuries to come, made with love, takes on a whole new meaning. Uh, but the specifics of the common practice continue to morph with the times. And as sugar became more available, the food that was part of the wedding cake became sweeter as well. So these things became more elaborate. We had frosted buns and spiced scones and cookies, and the dessert spread eventually became these high, precarious stacks made by the couple's family. Again, a show of status, mm -hmm. right, to demonstrate what you can do, pull out all the stops for the wedding. We moved away from crumbs in your hair and having bread rolls thrown at you, and now there was a new challenge. How could you reach over the piled high tower and kiss without sending any sweets falling to the ground, which represented good fortune for the marriage if it fell? Well, wedding guests took to throwing cakes from the pile at the bride and groom just to make sure the good fortune followed them. Doesn't really seem like great incentive to wear your best clothes on your wedding day if someone's gonna be throwing a frosted bun at you as hard as they can. Yeah, but I mean, if you're gonna wear that wedding dress once, I mean, who cares if it gets dirty? That's true, I guess, yeah. that's true. 
While the tradition of, of piling pastries was gaining popularity over the next generations, the sugary treats used weren't specifically associated with marriage traditions. Wedding guests would bring whatever they knew how to bake or whatever they had ingredients for. In fact, the first wedding-specific bake wasn't a cake at all, it was a pie, it was a savory pie. In 1685, a recipe for a quote, bride's pie, should be worth noting that pie is spelled P-Y-E, which is awesome. This pie was a common flaky crust containing lamb testicles, a rooster comb, oysters, and pine kernels. Mm. Don't you love wow. probably British cooking? Yeah, that's delicious. That so sounds good. fantastic. Sounds awesome. Mm. Eating the pie was believed to allow the couple to have a happy marriage together. So following the ceremony, the newlyweds and all their guests would eat the entire pie. To refuse a slice was like a guest wearing white to a wedding today. I didn't know that that was a faux pas. Yeah, I mean, the idea is that the bride is the only one in white. Yeah. Yeah, so you're like trying to show up at the bride. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Ah, well. Something fun about the bride's pie is that sometimes they would hide a ring in it. Whoever had the slice with a ring would be favored to get married next. So it's kind of a precursor to throwing the bouquet. The bride's pie began to fall out of fashion, which honestly seems fine, and sweet cakes started to become the standard way to celebrate. While they were often bare, simple cakes in the early years, as refined sugar became much cheaper in the 17th century, allowing chefs to frost cakes in the white, airy frosting that so many associate with wedding cakes today. And similar to the iconic wedding dress, the white cake, meant to only be worn by the bride, gotcha. symbolizes the purity and virginity, which is why it's worn by the bride, in addition to being a show of status and wealth. Early wedding cakes were small, simple, and short, not the extravagant, heavily decorated, multi-tiered cakes that you probably see on the homepage of some people's Pinterests. While no one knows for sure when wedding cakes took on the scale of their pastry pile predecessors, shout out to Audrey Erickson for some lovely alliteration there, <laughs> some historians believe cakes started getting taller in the 18th century. Allegedly, a baker, in an attempt to impress the woman he was courting, baked the multi-tiered cake, meant to resemble the spire of a church when he proposed. From there and throughout the Victorian era, cakes continue to get taller and more elaborate. In the same way that foods appear during a couple's big day have changed throughout history, the many traditions and rituals of weddings continue to evolve, with everything from fuchsia wedding dresses to solo walks down the aisle to personalized vows. Weddings can now entirely reflect those getting married, their relationship, and their story. And as our culture changes, our celebrations and traditions with loved ones evolve to reflect it. With society's expanding understanding of identity, people are finding that their relationships to themselves and to others are complicated. That they may not fit into the binaries and traditional gender roles that many wedding traditions are based on. It's also more common for people to find love with others from different cultures, religions, and backgrounds. Now, couples who are a blend of different backgrounds and couples who don't fit into heteronormative standards can come together and say, I do, however they want. It's worth noting that a lot of the history of the wedding cake comes from a very sort of Eurocentric, heteronormative idea of purity, virginity, and the access to ingredients. I mean, people who had sugarcane indigenous to their lands probably had access to sweeter foods earlier than Western Europeans did. And other cultures had similar or different traditions that don't involve a sweet, multi-tiered wedding cake. So that's a very sort of white American view of the history of it, but it is a Western tradition, so it is not 
universal in that sense. So if you're know a couple looking to break the tradition of cake slice post-nuptials, maybe their idea will be the next big thing in wedding cake's long history. Probably won't have lamb's testicles and a rooster comb in it. So which who's is to say? Who's to say? Who's to say? If that is what you want for your wedding, I'm so glad that you're the one eating the lamb's testicles. Yeah, that's great. I'll abstain, but thanks for the invite. What did you do at your wedding, Mike? What did I do at my wedding? We did a lot to make the wedding our own in our own way. We had a board of, how do I describe this? We had a popcorn board. We had <laughs> like little cones of popcorn for each individual guest. We threw the wedding at my parents' house. And so we had, we put a lot of work into making the venue our own too. We did have a dinner at a restaurant and there was a cake that was not initially intended to be for all of the guests. It was just a small cake that we thought we might take home and save. And my mother-in-law, bless her, saw it and got excited and demanded that it be cut up and shared with everyone. So everybody got some of the wedding cake. But we had learned some of these histories ourselves in doing some research about the wedding. And I'd learned, I'd come across some information about the wedding cake symbolizing fertility and virginity and the purity of the unmarried woman and cutting into it symbolizes the impurity of the now married, presumably sexually active woman who is going to become a mother around the whole idea of marriage. And we decided to kind of stay away from the public cutting of the cake and the smashing it into each other's faces. So been to some weddings where that's lovely and that's great. Yeah, yeah. I can definitely see that. Like you said, different strokes for different folks. With that in mind, it feels very much like all the priests and people of the court stand around the king and queen's marriage bed on their night. So <laughs> I definitely understand the impulse to move away from that. Yeah, that wasn't our intention. Yeah. So with all of our shows here in the education department, we build supportive programming around those shows to bring students in. And we share that programming with audiences as well as students who are coming to see the shows so that we can kind of prepare students and public audiences as well to encounter the shows and to be a little bit more thoughtful or interrogate a little bit more the reasons behind producing these shows and what you might get out of them. So I'd love to ask you, Nick, as one of the education apprentices this year, who's been working on creating post and pre-show activities, as well as focus questions for all of our main stage shows. These questions prepare audiences and students for the shows and kind of prime them for some of the big questions we're going to be looking at. So I'd love to hear about how you come up with these questions and what you were interested in getting at here with these questions about the cake. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Mike. So the way that Liana SC, the other education apprentice in our department, and I look at this every time we approach creating these questions for a new show is thinking about what ideas we want to hit. Sort of big themes, big topics, things that we want the students to think about. And then we try and come at those topics from three different directions. When we are creating our pre-show activities, what is a way that we can get the students thinking about those big topics without directly asking them? So trying to get them in the headspace of thinking about divisions between themselves and someone else and cultural backgrounds that they might have that they hold near and dear to their heart that maybe a close friend of theirs or a classmate or someone that they know might have a different view on. So for example, we start with everything from asking, what is your favorite kind of cake? And then asking you to find someone who disagrees and debating why your cake is better to talking about or asking them to research the Supreme Court case. We publish these activities in our play notes so they have direct access to some secondhand sources, some good source material for them to read and discuss with 
partners or with people around them. And once we get them sort of primed to think about these topics, we try and ask them questions that are directly related to the text of the show. So pulling quotes, pulling direct plot beats. Um, for example, in The Cake, Della has a lot of almost dream sequence interactions with one of the hosts of a fictional Great British Bake Off style show, The Big American Bake Off, because she has in the play been selected to participate. And so we ask them, why do you think baking reality competitions have become so popular in the last decade or so? And asking them to research that and finding out why these things are in the script. So asking our students to really think critically about the legitimate text of the play and then extrapolate themes and ideas from there. For example, a lot of this play deals with family, found family, and the interactions between the two. And we ask the question, reflect on your family's expectations of your life and your personal experience, and then comparing it to the experience of Jen and Macy, the two queer characters in the show. As we've established, these sort of struggles are unique, but also contain a level of universality in the sense that these people are human beings and they experience the full range of human emotion like every one of our audience members do. So asking someone to take away the given circumstances of these characters being queer folks trying to have a wedding and then facing resistance on that and then applying the core idea of these people are living a life and it is conflicting with someone who they care about's expectations for their life, which is something that I can relate to, something that I bet anyone else who is sitting in the seats can relate to. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to get them into a headspace where they see the core issues of the play as something that has happened to them as well, and then asking them to reflect on that. Yeah, the universality piece is really nice about that, Nick, because we, and like you were saying, we wouldn't expect every single person who comes to see this play to have these exact experiences to be able to draw on that, but everybody has in their history some experience of feeling outside, feeling excluded, feeling like they're not being accepted by the people that they care about, some aspect in which their own identity is running up against the beliefs of the people in their lives. And that's the kind of thing that we want folks to be able to kind of look outside of themselves and connect with these characters on stage. And Becca does that so well with this play. Todd Backus, the director, does that so well with this play. This cast does that so well with this play to make all of these characters seem human and alive and endearing to us, connect with us all in one way or another. But we're just trying to prime these a little bit, specifically when we're talking to students about how do we get them to kind of connect to some of these things. One thing that I think you do really nicely in these focus questions, one of them that, that popped out to me was this idea of who is the protagonist and who is the antagonist of this play. It's the same kind of thing that we're just talking about with the way that these characters move through the world, because I don't think it's clear to me in an initial read and having seen the show now that there is a clear good guy, bad guy paradigm here, right? These are all humans who you can understand where they're coming from, their own perspectives, and they're all struggling with how they stand up for themselves, support what they believe, and also the people they love in the worlds around them. And I think it's I think it's a great question. And I'd be curious to hear if we had a chance to talk with some students about that, the kinds of answers that we would get from them. I would imagine they would not all be the same and that we might get some great conversations out of that if we were able to have that conversation with a, with a large group of students. Absolutely. And something that we are trying to do with this podcast is get the word out a little bit more about Play Notes. So if you are a listener and you come to see the cake, look for underneath the two televisions in our lobby, there are two binders with the show art on the front. And that is a printed out copy of Play Notes that is available to the public for free. So if you come 
and you have a group and you want to do a little bit more critical thinking, a little bit more discussion about the ideas that are presented in this play, after or before the show, grab that binder, flip it open to our focus questions, and pick one that speaks to you. And discuss it with a friend. Discuss it with a stranger. We do this work because it's oftentimes easy for an audience member to walk in, see a show, walk out, and say, that was nice, and stop thinking about it. So these focus questions are trying to get you to think a little bit more about whether or not characters change. What does that mean when the characters change in this play? Do you have an ingrained belief system like a character in this play? Did you relate to someone in this play? How might you explore other opportunities for thought other than one that you might have in your own life? And that's not to say that anyone's ingrained belief system is wrong or right. It's just whether or not it is the same as someone else's. And so we're trying to ask audience members to think outside their box a little bit. And these questions might be a good starting point to have a great discussion with another theater goer if you come see the show. That's great. And if you want to check out these Play Notes articles before coming into our theater, you can always sign up to receive the Play Notes at a small cost, mailed directly to you. We also have them on our website, portlandstage.org slash education slash Play Notes. And you can check out the Play Notes for the current production there. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Play Notes. As always, you can find a print version of the articles you've heard here on our website, portlandstage.org slash Play Notes. Tickets for the cake are on sale now, so contact our box office by calling 207-774-0465 or buy them directly through our website. The show is open now and runs until April 23rd. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on whatever app you're using and tell your friends about it. Word of mouth is a great way to market our podcast. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we hope to see you at the show. This episode is brought to you by Audrey Erickson, Nick Hone, Leanna S.C., Michael Dix-Thomas, Ashley Ward, and Maura O'Sullivan. Sullivan.